Welcome to The Principled Podcast, brought to you by LRN. The Principled Podcast brings together the collective wisdom on ethics, business and compliance, transformative stories of leadership, and inspiring workplace culture. Listen in to discover valuable strategies from our community of business leaders and workplace changemakers. Hello and welcome to another episode of LRN's Principled Podcast. My name is Ben DiPietro. I'm the editor of LRN's ENC Pulse newsletter. I hope you can find that and subscribe. With me today uh, as part of our season five is Maria Fernandez, the Vice President and Head of Ethics and Compliance at Direct Energy. Maria supports Direct Energy's lines of business to ensure they're operating in accordance with all the relevant standards and regulations. Direct Energy is one of North America's largest energy and energy-related service providers and is uh, merging with NRG Energy once the sale takes completion in January. Prior to working at Direct Energy, Maria worked at IBM, where she held various leadership positions. And so we welcome Maria in today. Thanks for uh, spending some time with us. Great. Thank you for inviting me. So what prompted you to uh, have a career in ethics and compliance? And what about this profession is most interesting to you? And tell us about your career path and how you wound up at Direct Energy. Okay, so I am part of a group called Recovering Lawyers in the sense of I was a transactional lawyer for many years for IBM. I was there for many, many years. And I was offered the opportunity to be part of the ethics and compliance team. There it's called trust and compliance because of the work I had done in Latin America. I had been the Latin America general counsel for many years And obviously, Latin America has a number of compliance concerns that anyone would deal with on a daily basis. And what I liked about it was it was much more strategic. As a transactional lawyer, you're very reactive. The deal starts, it dies, it starts back up. You spend three or four days where that's kind of all you do, and then you're done, and then you move on to the next emergency or next deal, depending on what you're doing as a lawyer. Whereas ethics and compliance allowed me to think a bit about who did we want to be as a company? How does the culture and the ethics of our people influence how we're seen, how we do business? How can we turn that to a business advantage? And so that was where the strategic part came in for me. And I really enjoyed doing that. And so then career path. I am a little bit of a unicorn. I graduated from Cornell Law School and was hired straight into IBM. Back then, they still hired at a law school and you were trained. They had a training program. You were sent to a location and you were given clients and files and work and told to go off and be a lawyer, which is a little scary because many Folks who have gone through law school will tell you that law school doesn't really teach you how to practice. It just kind of teaches you how to think. And I had been at IBM many years in many different positions, always sort of changing jobs, except for Latin America. I was in the Latin America role for about seven years. So steep learning curves, learning different areas of the technology. But I was a little bored. And I was looking for some sort of a new challenge. I had moved out of ethics and compliance, so I was back to doing transactional work. And so I started looking for ethics and compliance roles. And I came up on direct energy. A recruiter contacted me 
and I'm a native New Yorker, if you can't tell from my accent. And so I thought, oh, Houston, hmm, I, I don't know. And she said to me, you know what? The worst thing that happens is you lose a day. Just go interview with them and see what you think. And I came down and honestly, I liked everybody. I thought these are people I can work with. It was a lot less structured than IBM, but I thought I needed to exercise that muscle to not be in a place that was quite so bureaucratic. It allowed me to have a closer relationship with the leadership given the smaller size, and it was going to allow me to really have a full leadership role in ethics and compliance. So I ended up at Direct Energy. And before you became a lawyer, you earned a degree in psychology. We hear so much about behavioral science and its importance to creating cultures of ethics, integrity, and inclusion. So how does your psychology background help you as a CECO? I think the psychology provides the background to try to understand as I'm trying to implement change, what makes people tick. All of us have different ways of hearing messages. We have different ways of learning and we have different ways of being influenced. And so it often requires me to sit back and think about how do I get this person to personalize why this is important. What is it that is going to do for them, right? Because I think oftentimes when you come in as a compliance officer, the thought is you are the police, you are the obstruction, um, you're the one that's going to tell me I can't do this this way, I have to put these additional five steps into place. And so building those relationships and understanding how to work the different individuals is part of what I think helps me be more successful as a compliance officer. You're also now in the energy industry, and as the world begins to transition away from fossil fuels, and we really don't know how long that's going to take, how will the risk change for the energy industry? What do those changes mean for how you run and plan for your ENC program as you move ahead? And how does this long, slow transition affect the way you think about your training and your communications? So the risk to the energy industry, I think, is going to be regulatory based as we move. And clearly, we've already heard President-elect Biden say he doesn't like fracking, right? Vice President-elect Kamala Harris has said she would ban fracking. So it's going to mean a change. We're likely to go back to a bigger discussion about climate change and how that impacts. And so that obviously concerns fossil fuel providers and sellers. And I think we're going to have to move. The industry is going to have to move. It's going to have to learn to move quickly. It's going to have to learn to move to what consumers want. But also, I think connecting with the regulators so that the regulations that will inevitably come out engender both the safety issues that they're probably concerned about, the consumer issues, as well as the ability to make money. So, you know, one example is we are currently owned by Centrica, which is a UK-based company. And in the UK, they passed a price cap on energy providers. Well, that clearly limits their ability to do business. So there's a disconnect that we're going to have to all figure out as we begin to move. It's also business imperative because our customers are asking more and more for green technology and for renewables. And so I think that's going to be interesting. Now, what does that mean for the ethics and compliance program? 
I don't know that it changes it too much other than having to stay ahead of and working with your government affairs folks to ensure that we're influencing the legislation so it works for everyone. That's a more longer term issue you're dealing with. You've got an immediate thing right now with COVID-19. How is that impacting the ENC program? What do you think the lasting changes to the program are going to be either in how it's practiced or in what it emphasizes from what's happened here with this pandemic? So the interesting piece about COVID-19 is that, one, you have people working remotely, and it makes it a little bit harder sometimes to be able to figure out what's happening, right? When you're in an office environment, um, someone will overhear something, someone will leave something on a table, someone will tell someone else, and the word spreads and somehow you find out that something's happening that is not appropriate. We, are, we have seen, and I think there's many practitioners in this field who have seen a reduction in the number of speak-ups, um, so employee concerns or third-party concerns that are coming forward. And that kind of raises the question of, is there really less concerns or are people just so involved with what's happening right now, right? You have children, you have dogs, you have, (laughs) there's so many distractions of things you're trying to get done that is a perceived infraction or a violation not being reported because that person doesn't have time. So I think our biggest challenge is going to be how do we continue to spread the messages with people who are remote, because there's only so many emails that you're going to read. So we're going to have to get very creative with how we reach our audience. Any ideas on how you're going to be able to break through that way or anything you're trying or testing? Well, one of the things that we've been doing is ensuring that messages are embedded in the messages from our leaders, including any messages. Obviously, we're, we're about to close our transaction Um, So there's a lot of messages that are coming out about the transition. And so what we decided is rather than have the transition notes go out and our notes go out and all the other notes go out, that we would embed those messages within those so that it seems more organic, more natural, and people are going to read it because everybody wants to know what's happening with the transition. We recently sat together on a panel about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now that we are past 2020, Do you think this current movement for social justice and equality has the strength to be a source for long-lasting change? If so, why? And if not, what can we do to create that environment? So I'm mixed on this one. I get concerned that people are no longer talking about it the way that we did in the beginning. I get concerned that we're not hearing about protests or people getting together, and hopefully peaceful ones, right? It seems to have died down a bit. I do see what has been unique to me is that corporations are suddenly saying, okay, I need to stop talking about it. I need to do something. And so if the corporations continue that focus and people continue to push on the need for diversity, equity, inclusion, I think it will continue. And I'm just hoping we don't need another very horrible incident to spark this back up. I also hope that we, those of us who care about diversity, equity, and inclusion, 
will continue to push this area and have those very uncomfortable conversations. Yeah, and they need to happen too. So what role can business actually play then to bring about promoting these things we're talking about? So, you know, we've done unconscious bias for a while. I think that needs to continue to be done. But I heard recently, uh, I was on a program with CUP, is the Council for Urban Professionals. And one of the panelists spoke about their company now starting to have programs on allyship, on how to be an ally. I know we've also done programs, for example, how to ask someone what their pronoun is, what their gender identity is, what is the appropriate word, what do the terms mean? And so I I really believe more education, continued focus, and continued discussion in this area is important. So for example, I recently did an exercise where we used I am but not, right? So I started with, I am Latina, but not undocumented, right? Um, And we did that as a broader group. And I picked different examples. They were not just minorities in terms of the examples. And I think people got a lot out of it. So I think there's a way to do it to make people conscious without pointing fingers. Um, And I think the more you exercise that, the greater that muscle will be to be open, to discover, to be curious, to ask, and to have those conversations. I agree. I used to work for a company in Hawaii, Pacific Business News, and we used to do a thing called Walk in My Shoes. And everybody would write and share what their life was, how they grew up. And and because it was Hawaii and it was a very diverse environment, you've got this overall thing. And it humanizes everybody and takes away that that stigma that may be attached to somebody because of who, you know, what they look like or their skin color. And it was really useful. And I would like to see more companies actually do that. So this has been great. I really enjoyed this. Let me ask you one last question before we get you out of here and appreciate your time. As a woman in compliance, what advice do you have for people, particularly women and people of color, as they enter or consider a career in ethics and compliance? You have to be a little bit fearless. I think the best compliance officers are the ones that are willing to hold up a mirror and say, we need to look at ourselves as a company. I had to do that early on in direct energy, and I was pleased that the business leaders agreed with me and they they went the next step with me. As a person of color, I believe and will believe till my dying day that unfortunately, we need to do a little bit more to get people to recognize, to be influenced by us. And so sometimes it's being super overprepared. In my case, sometimes it was having very clear examples. Okay, you think this was an anomaly. Now let's look at this one. Let's look at this one. Let's look at this one. You know, by the time you present the fourth case, they go, okay, fine, I see a pattern. And I think that's the way to do it. It is a growing field. I think it is a fun field. It is a little bit dangerous, right? Because you can miss something. Um, and something can happen under your watch that you basically had no control under over, but people will look to you. And I think it just, it allows you to touch so many areas of the business 
you know, you're part of the strategy. You need to understand marketing. You need to understand the regulations. Uh, you know, the energy field is heavily regulated. How do you figure those out? So it's a fun place. And I think they need more people of color and different diverse diversities involved. Because I think an important part of ethics and compliance is culture. And so the culture of a company and the culture of your compliance team should reflect your customers, should reflect the broader industry in which you're in, and should help change things by being provocative and by presenting your diverse way of thinking. And that to me is important. So I encourage people to consider it and to go out there and just slay as compliance leaders. (laughs) That's a perfect metaphor as we uh, are in this holiday season here. So I will thank you for your time. That was wonderful. And uh, wish you uh, continued success going on and uh, stay safe as we fight COVID through 2021 here. And hopefully by summertime, we'll be able to go outside and see each other as humans. And that would be nice. Thank you so much, Maria. Much appreciated. Thank you. Same to you. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode. The Principled Podcast is brought to you by LRN. At LRN, our mission is to inspire principled performance in global organizations by helping them foster winning ethical cultures rooted in sustainable values. Please visit us at LRN.com to learn more. And if you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And don't forget to leave us a review.